today is April 4th, 2019. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. I'm Selma Qureshi, and our guest today is Craig Blackstone. Hi, Craig. Hi. So Craig is a, a senior investigator in the cell biology section, neurogenetics branch at NINDS. His group is working on pathogenic mechanisms and neurological movement disorders, specifically hereditary spastic paraplegias. His work is leveraging some incredibly exciting new live cell super resolution imaging tech to give us a new view of subcellular space and organelle structure and function. So around the room we've got a new addition, uh, Michael Hanna. Hello, Michael. Hello. We've got Fidel Santamaria. Hello. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. And let's get started. So, um, Craig, hereditary spastic paraplegias are a diverse set of clinically defined disorders that have broad genetic loci, yet in your work you've managed to converge this daunting complexity on a few cellular pathogenic themes that center on the endoplasmic reticulum. Can you say something about that process? Yeah, I think that one of the big advantages that we've had over the past uh, two decades is the advances in uh, DNA sequencing technologies and genomics that gives us the ability to identify genes very quickly. Uh, and for the spastic paraplegias, unlike some more common disorders, we've been fortunate that there's so many different genes. And you would think at first that that's, that's just going to be daunting complexity. But of course, uh, it turns out that, for, for very fortunate reasons, that many of them seem to be coalescing into a small number of pathways, as you mentioned. Some more severe forms will coalesce around endosomal or lysosomal pathways, but the, by far the most common forms, and in many ways the purest forms, where spastic paraplegia is the predominant symptoms, have turned out to be proteins that are all in the endoplasmic reticulum. They interact with one another, and in fact they seem to have the same function in controlling the morphology of the ER. So what that does is that gives us, again, a converging theme that can benefit maybe a large number of patients that we might have uh, been able to help if it was just like 90 different disorders in 90 different genes. So I think it's been a very valuable experience in that we have the ability now to have such a clear convergence of protein interactions and functions around one theme that will allow us to pursue this in more depth and, and hopefully at some point this will lead to the insights that give us better therapeutics. And the, the proteins you're talking about live in the cytoplasmic leaflet of the endoplasmic reticulum, right? And they kind of uh, distort the shape, and that's what makes it curve. Is that right. approximately Right. Correct? So one of, the, one of the unique features of these proteins is not only do they interact with each other, and they're, they're all membrane proteins, and they have a unique feature. They're not like a typical membrane protein where it spans through the entire membrane, and you have uh, both a cytoplasmic and a uh, luminal uh, you know, portion of the protein. These proteins have what are called hydrophobic hairpins. They go halfway through and then come out. So they're really only in the outer leaflet, as you said, of the, of the um, ER membrane. And that also allows them to generate curvature. So if you're in the outside by wedging, scaffolding, lots of different mechanisms, the more of these proteins you have, the more curved your ER is. So you can control the luminal diameter, presumably. You can control the edges of sheets. You can control a lot of, uh, maybe even around where a nuclear pore will be in the nuclear envelope. So these proteins actually give the structure to the ER and allows the ER to have many different structures and still have a continuous lumen. Are there similar ones that control the plasma membrane? Because that would be the plasmic leaflet. Why wouldn't the same molecule just find itself on the cytoplasmic leaflet of the 
plasma membrane and make that curvy. Well, one big difference is that you know, in terms of the scale, the, the the plasma membrane is really more like a sheet. It's more, it's not really that curved. Now there are certain structures that do curve, and again, there's a lot of similar types of proteins that are involved in endocytic pathways or in terms of forming vesicles. But you have to remember that the scale of an ER tubule, you're talking something maybe 20, 30, 40 nanometers in diameter. Uh, a cell is far larger than that. So uh, we even think of the nuclear envelope as being more like a sheet. Uh, and we think, certainly think of the plasma membrane as being like a sheet. But of course, there's microdomains within there where you're going to have high degrees of curvature, like bring uh, endocytosis or something, where you would have proteins that are specifically um, targeted to do that. And they can do it by different means. They don't all do it by the hydrophobic wedging. They can do it by scaffolding in other ways, like you might see with clathrin, bar domain proteins, things like that. That was my question. <laughs> Is this hairpin loop a common form format for all these sorts of morphological curvatures? But I guess not. So. No, we, we really, this seems to be unique to the, um, uh, to the ER, at least that we've seen. Now, there's other structures that might have similar degrees of curvature, maybe a synaptic vesicle, things like that. But as far as we know, uh, and again, one thing that is challenging is like, you know, the typical programs that you get to predict structures and membrane domains don't predict these. You know, so really it might be somewhat of a bias of the people who are studying these. Know to look for, you know, they do the topology, they figure out what it is. But a lot of the computer programs that are out there and algorithms don't really predict these structures. So there is a chance that there's other classes of these proteins that are shaping membranes in other organelles. It's just that we've happened to focus on the ER. There's so much attention to these proteins in the ER that, again, people look for them there. And I'm not sure they look for them as intensively in other organelles. So this fine structure is, is, is really important. And it seems like in, it's your work that kind of illuminated this next level of, of structure of the ER that wasn't so far possible through traditional confocal methods. Can you talk about some of these key discoveries that you made about ER structure? Yeah, uh, so again, uh, for, for years, you know, we're working with, again, a lot of labs like ours, Tom Rappaport, Gia Volz. A lot of labs have been really, and I think it started with Tom, uh, really thinking about how proteins actually give the unique shapes of the ER. And that was very good as we were thinking about the ER is, is a simple structure with, um, you know, maybe a nuclear envelope, sheets, and tubes, and something so simple. However, uh, years ago, we started to realize, even within our own lab, that there was a lot of disagreements in, in people quantitating morphological changes. And uh, fortunately, we were next door to Jennifer Lippincott-Schwartz's lab, and we were able to start collaborating with them using a lot of very advanced imaging that she was developing in conjunction with Eric Betzig, Harold Hess, and others at Genalia. And it seemed like the ER was perfect for these types of studies because we were realizing that we needed better imaging modalities to really understand the fine structure of the ER. And there was these advances in imaging that sort of dovetailed exactly what we needed to do. Uh, and that started what's been a very long-term collaboration with those groups. Uh, and that has allowed us to take a lot of the questions we have about ER morphology uh, and dynamics as well as, as, as just the fine structure, and then to start answering some of those questions uh, with a particular emphasis on identifying perhaps new types of ER that we hadn't fully appreciated, as well as the dynamics not only of the ER tubules, but also of individual proteins within the ER. And again, many of these are membrane proteins, so we were really focusing on the dynamics of these membrane proteins, whether it's a traditional um, you know, type 1 ER protein that spans the membrane, or these you know, newer uh, hairpin domains. Again, they're different types of, of membrane domains. They have different types of interactions. And, and you know, we certainly think, and these are studies that are ongoing, we certainly think they're going to have different types of mobility within the membrane. So the dynamics that you see of and the movements of individual proteins mm -hmm. is not due to 
the movement of the ER itself. They're both in motion at the same time, or at least changing morphology, changing location. Yeah, we certainly think so, because we certainly think a lot of the things that will control the ER, um, the motion of ER tubules is going to be dependent on cytoskeletal elements, motors, uh, uh, proteins like that. Uh, and certainly the, um, the movement of the proteins within the ER itself, we expect to be governed by different mechanisms. In many cases, we don't know what those are. Certainly, if they're related to interactions with other proteins, we would expect those to be different proteins. Sure. So we do expect those to be, at least on the surface, distinct processes. Now, whether they're correlated or, or, or coordinately regulated in some way, we don't know. But we certainly would expect the proteins that mediate those to be different. So in some of the dynamic images that you see of, of the tubular structure changing of the peripheral ER, um, is there a way to determine whether that's an active or a passive movement response? Uh, so, for example, like would they be associations of other organelles kind of moving alongside them, or are these actually generative like movements that are generated locally within those? those you mean the movements of the pro yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, uh, first is I guess what makes them move so much? I mean, they're moving a lot. We know it's some cytoskeletal. It's probably related to uh, motors as well. One thing we have noticed is it's not just thermal. Uh, we can actually shut down almost all this movement by inhibiting GTPases and ATPases fairly generally within the cell. Uh, of course, when you do that, you're affecting a lot of different cellular processes, but you can essentially bring the movement almost to a halt. So we know that there's these other proteins that are going to be regulating this, uh, th these dynamics, and it wouldn't be surprising based on wh where those proteins are localized that we would get different types of movement in different parts of the cell. That's not something we've looked at extensively yet, but it certainly would not be a surprise, especially in a polarized cell. But I, I wonder if this is kind of a part of like a three-part um, mechanism in which you have the ER, the uh, mitochondria, and, and the microtubules mm -hmm. working together because they, they, they interact, right? Mm -hmm. And then, uh, especially in axon, in axonal terminals and spines, the, the energetics, you can regulate the energetics and the efficiency of the synapses mm -hmm. by just moving the, the mitochondria away. And I wonder if now, I mean, people were just looking at the mitochondria and then they were saying, mm -hmm. well, the mitochondria is moving through interactions with the cytoskeleton. I wonder if it is the, the three things together mm -hmm. uh, that uh, are interacting and, uh, and the, the proteins that you're talking about uh, are involved in that. Yeah, again, I don't know if it's exactly the same proteins, but there's certainly mm -hmm. going to be a group of ER proteins that are involved in interactions with other organelles. And it, I think it's very reasonable to expect that the ER plays an important role in positioning those organelles in conjunction with the cytoskeleton. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that's going to absolutely end up being true. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, it also regulates the organelles also. In the case of mitochondria, ER tubules can be involved in the fission of mitochondria, which is you know potentially changing their shape and potentially changing the mobility because of that. That. And we're seeing, uh, there's also been work that has been shown in endosomal tubulation, the same thing, that some of these processes, the fission processes of tubules or the modification of these, uh, the morphology of these organelles certainly seems to be guided in some way by the ER. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think there's a positioning role and as well as actually having an effect on the morphology of those organelles themselves, which of course ultimately could determine where they're distributed and how they function. And, and changing, I mean, the, one way to think about the ER, uh, the smooth ER, is that is like this maximization of the surface to volume, right? I mm -hmm. mean, uh, uh, for reuptake of calcium or whatever. So yeah. the, the dynamics could be uh, activity dependent on, on calcium, I imagine, or something like that, that 
that that you change the density of this um, the, the of the ER of the smooth ER. Absolutely, I think that that's good. Those are the types of studies I think people are going to increasingly be doing. I mean, I, I think one way to characterize it is certainly now in terms of the proteins that we've been studying with relationship to this disease is we've been focusing primarily on its effect on changing the morphology. Right. But then the next step is, well, what does that mean for the cell? What is the change? Why did we need to regulate this in the first place? And it's going to be for reasons that you mentioned. It's going to be for signaling, for positioning, for calcium uh, flux. A lot of those are going to be, end up being Im uh, impacted by the shape of the ER. Mm -hmm. uh, but at this time, I don't think there's been as extensive studies that have been done in that area. But that's certainly the area that would be done in the future. Again, how, these, how specifically these morphologic changes that, that were of the proteins that we're studying, how they impact functions like that. I wonder if there are predictions that you can make based on the structures of networks and the, the energetic needs of neurons. Because, I mean, these, none of these cells that you've been looking at are specifically uh, electrically active. Cells. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of the fundamental biology, certainly a lot of these proteins are expressed in every cell and all the way back to yeast in many cases. So they certainly have a very fundamental role in controlling the ER shape. Now, all these different types of cells, of course, have different um, functions and they have different excitability and some of the signaling pathways would be different. So it's not surprising that the ER would have different functions in different types of cells. And there's certainly been work in uh, in neurons, at least some work in terms of the morphology of ER, and that activity-dependent processes like stimulation can certainly change the morphology of the ER locally, and probably vice versa. Probably positional changes in ER could affect the signaling through those. I don't. Again, it's been studied. Again, I don't know how comprehensively, but it's certainly a, an expectation that, like, if you think about, um, there's myosin proteins within spines that might have a role in it locally in, in altering ER dynamics. Uh, and localization. So there might be some special specializations in cells like neurons that may control the morphology more locally uh, in, in response to activity, calcium, so on. And I think all those, uh, again, are using basically the same basic mechanisms for you know controlling shape, but they would be doing it uh, more locally and maybe in a more dynamic fashion than you might see in other cells that aren't excitable. So these spastic paraplegia seem to uh, disproportionately or almost completely affect long axon motor neurons. Or what are the intuitions about why that would be the case based on the mutations that you see in these core endoplasmic? Well, well, yeah, well, one thing about the most common forms, it's interesting, there, there's sort of a, a, a way we could explain it for almost all the most common forms. And certainly, if we think of the three most common, which are uh, SPG4, which is due to a protein, mutations in a protein called spastin, SPG3A, which is a protein called atlastin, and SPG31, which is a protein called REAP1. That's about, you know, almost half of all the patients with HSP. So we're obviously we're going to have a huge impact if we can understand those. All those proteins are ER proteins, clearly, uh, though spastin also localizes to other organelles, uh, and they all have this sort of hairpin domain uh, motif. What's interesting about spastin is it exists in different forms that are related to differential use of start codons. And it, it, the, the form that is expressed most highly in spinal cord, which of course where the cortical spinal tracts traverse through, is the form that has the hydrophobic hairpin. So we think that spastin, which is involved in microtubule, regulating microtubule dynamics through severing activities, may be a form that's predominantly expressed in, in the portion of the, of the 
brain that would be involved, or, or, of the CNS that would be involved in this disease, appears to be the form that is localized to the ER. So that would be one thing, and you wouldn't necessarily see that in the periphery because that form isn't as expressed as high. Elastin is a part of a protein family of large GTPases that are involved in fusing ER tubules. Uh, the form that is uh, mutated in the disease is the one that's predominantly expressed in the brain. So uh, there's other forms in the periphery that may be able to do some of those functions in the absence of proper elastin function. And the REAP1 is also a, a, a protein that has multiple family members that are predominantly expressed peripherally. So it, it might be as simple as these are just where these particular proteins happen to localize to the nervous system. If you look at other forms of hereditary spastic paraplegia that are due to mutations in, in both proteins that involve ER morphology as well as proteins that involve other pathways, I think it would not be surprising if we were able to identify ER abnormalities, but perhaps they wouldn't have the same impact because the cell is maybe only 20 microns in diameter rather than a meter uh, in length. So the, um, the scale of the difference between a long upper motor, uh, upper motor neuron or corticospinal neuron is, again, many orders of magnitude larger than the distances that would need to be traversed in a peripheral cell. So even if we could see abnormalities in ER, in some of those cells, it might not have the same impact on the survival or the function of the cell. However, there are a, a class of hereditary spastic paraplegias called complicated mm -hmm. forms, and these individuals show some um, developmental uh, mm -hmm. or, or learning, um, mm -hmm. I don't want to say disabilities, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, learn, you know, they can only progress to like a seventh or eighth grade mm -hmm. level of education. Yeah, so is that so, the, uh, and if this is length dependent, mm -hmm. what do you think then might be going wrong in these complex, in, in these sort of learning and memory kind of? So that's a very, that's a very good question. So in a sense that the complex forms that you're mentioning are usually not the ones that are directly linked to ER. They seem to be linked to uh, other pathways such as uh, particularly endolysosomal or autophagic pathways. And as you mentioned, there is, there's certainly a length dependent component, but there's also extensive abnormalities that are not, we wouldn't think of as length dependent. And one interesting aspect of many of those disorders is first is most of the time they're recessive disorders. They often occur in populations where there's hard degrees of intermarriage. Uh, and as you say, there's lots of different symptoms that have come along with spasticity. It could be that in those cases, uh, spasticity of the lower extremities is a very common um, symptom in a lot of neurologic disorders because the cells span so much distance within the CNS from the uh, motor cortex all the way to the, you know, the base of the spinal cord in many ways. Um, they can certainly be damaged and have prominent uh, abnormalities without a truly length-dependent aspect. In other words, the cell bodies could be dysfunctional there as well. Uh, and in the case, as you mentioned, of these disorders where there's a lot of peripheral uh, other manifestations in the nervous system like cognitive dysfunction or language abnormalities, seizures, that would suggest that it's not just a length-dependent process but also a... Um, you know, a, a primary degenerative process of the cell itself. Now, you might end up seeing uh, a sick cell might also have problems distributing organelles throughout a long distance. So you may get sort of a hybrid situation where you have a length-dependent aspect, maybe from one aspect of even distributing organelles that are critical for axonal survival, and a more, you know, a, a also a degenerative aspect that may be continuing in the background. Uh, and as you mentioned, a lot of those are early onset, and they also tend to become much more severe over time. Uh, and to affect a lot of other um, symptoms or a lot of other fe clinical features 
uh, beyond just spastic paraplegia. So again, I, I guess I think of those as separate from these ER disorders. Right. But some of the aspects could be similar and that there could be abnormalities of positioning of organelles, including potentially the ER, though we haven't looked at it in detail, that could give rise to maybe having an earlier presentation that looks more length dependent and that over time evolves to a more degenerative one. Like, uh, that's like probably you were measuring uh, motor uh, proteins like mm -hmm. uh, myosin mm -hmm. 5A, Mm -hmm. have been shown not to be responsible for, if you knock it out, it doesn't bring the ER into the spines and mm -hmm. breaking your cells, and then that, that, that uh, affects the expression of LTD. Mm -hmm. I mean, right, so that's a, a really good example of, again, a local kind of thing, yeah. where, whereas we don't have to necessarily have myosin 5A involved in all cell types and stuff, but mm -hmm. within a neuron, they're able to use the you know, ER morphology or positioning in a specific way that, that's activity dependent. Um, and other cells may do the same thing. They may, you know, they may have this basic, uh, this basic ER organization, and there may be some specializations that allow it to you know, either bring the ER closer or move it separately. Or the, and also the ER can be doing the same thing. The mm -hmm. ER itself can be positioning some, uh, some proteins such as my, or organelles such as mitochondria uh, and uh, lysosomes, uh, other organelles within the cell that could be important as well. So it could go in both directions. Right. The activity could regulate ER positioning and ER position, ER, the ER localization might be actually controlling the distribution of other organelles right. Right. through interactions. And it interacts extensively with other organelles. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you showed is this things that used to be identified as sh sheets of smooth mm -hmm. ER that are really perforated through mm -hmm. in little uh, pores. Mm -hmm. And then the pores are shifting around. Mm -hmm. So what's um, I mean, that's that's a not just random. That's something that's actually being driven by these proteins. Can we think of how should we think of that? I mean, what should that be for? Well, I think that's one of the the, the good things about the, these types of studies that have you know by pushing uh, the resolution with these different imaging modalities, you know, we've been able to see, as you mentioned, that some structures that used to look like sheets are in fact. Um, you know, either dense matrices or they were filled with holes. Uh, and the reason we couldn't see them is because they were moving so fast that they were obscured in confocal imaging and also that you just didn't have a spatial resolution. So I think what that tells us is that when we think about the ER structure in, in sort of more simplistic way, sheets, tubes, nuclear envelope, that we now have to think about other types of ER and how they might be functioning. I think in terms of the sort of the, the big picture change of what you do when you create a, uh, a sheet and you make it into a dense network of tubes is you dramatically increase the no amount of membrane that you're now dealing with and you dramatically decrease the amount of lumen. So again, as we think about what these might be doing, you know, are they supplying membrane for some structure? Is this a way to efficiently deliver membrane? You know, we don't know. Uh, but it would make more sense than, than maybe as a, sto a luminal store of something like calcium. Now we're thinking more like, well, why would you need to have all this membrane in one place rather than what are we doing with this lumen? So again, I think that it's not just the fact that we can see these structures. It makes us think how they might be functioning in very different ways. In my class this afternoon, I brought an image of the mammalian mm -hmm. cell and I told them, everything that you learned about the structures mm -hmm. of the, it's all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, and again, I think that one of the things is that by using these imaging, it allows us to, again, think about these organelles differently. We don't have to just look at them as round 
organelles or you know a, a simple net, we can also start to think about how proteins are distributed in microdomains throughout them. So these these organelles can become again they're much more dynamic than maybe we appreciate sometime. But also they're probably there's probably much more partitioning of different proteins and so on. It's obvious in e, in something like ER at least at some of the proteins because some of them actually create the shapes that they're in. You know they might be uh, sheet proteins are creating the stack sheets. The tubular proteins might be creating the tubes. But even within those tubes, I, I would be so shocked if the proteins weren't distributed um, in, in distinct domains that have it has functional meaning. And I think part of the goal of these advanced imaging technologies is to be able to identify those types of, of domains. And then from there, we can start to imagine how that might impact function of various types of ER. So would you say something about the direction that imaging is going? Because most of the imaging methods you're using are one-of-a-kind microscopes that were made by inventors of microscopes. Eventually, all of that stuff's going to filter out into the scientific community. Since you're seeing it ahead of time, could you tell us something about what to expect in the way of cool new microscopes that that have a chance of making it to us? What are the principles that... Well, I think that microscopes it? are going to have two major advantages. And one is increasing temporal resolution. You know, in other words, if we're trying to look at dynamics, if we're imaging at a second or so, that's very different than imaging at a couple milliseconds uh, in terms of the frequency of our imaging. And certainly a lot of the advances have been allowing us now to image at much higher frequencies and, again, to study maybe very rapid dynamic processes. Is that because there's like more photons or because we have better detectors for photons? Why can we go faster? I think it's a combination of those things. Uh, and, again, I think that a lot of it is also the dynamics and the ability also with, with some new fluorescent probes and stuff and not having to bleach things. Sometimes you can image a lot more frequently uh, without, you know, without getting extensive bleaching of, of your fluorophores. Uh, also, there's there's valuable things in terms of uh, CRISPR gene editing. You know, in other words, now we can put uh, tags on proteins without overexpressing them. And I think that's something that has been underappreciated, how much overexpression of ER proteins changes morphology. So by looking at it, we've had to change it in ways that might, you know, uh, take away from what, what, what we're trying to image and what we're trying to understand. So I think there's been more of a realization of using better fluorescent probes uh, and uh, again using techniques that maybe don't bleach things quite as quickly uh, and that are also able to acquire the images much quicker. Uh, and I think those have been huge advances uh, certainly in terms of the dynamics uh, of ER, but also just the better resolution. It, it, it's combined with it, these, these super resolution scopes are able to image at higher resolution. So the combination of higher spatial resolution and the ability to get higher temporal resolution, I think is giving us, again, a very different picture of what the ER is really like. And I think that that will likely extend to other proteins. And sort of the next step I would see is that if you have a, you know, if, again, if you're thinking about these organelles as just e even di distributed proteins on their surface, I don't think that's true. I think as we start to understand different domains and where proteins localize within these structures, that we will also start to understand some basic cell biology processes much more. Again, if you can imagine a lysosome, it may be very interesting to see how proteins uh, are distributed as it's forming a tubule or something. And we haven't really been able to resolve a lot of those things until some of these new microscopes have given us that ability. So I think the ability to, um, again, study uh, the, these increased um, resolution, both temporal and spatial, combined with the higher resolution, again, is going to allow us to see organelles in a different way. And it, it, I think what it will do is it will create a lot of new questions, because we will see things we weren't expecting. Uh, and, those and that will generate new types of experiments. And I think that will allow us, ultimately, to understand 
the function of organelles. But I also think that with uh, a lot of advances in something like multispectral imaging, which Jennifer Lippincott Schwartz and my collaborators done a lot of, that also allows us to look at a lot more organelles at the same time. And I think that's important too, is to think these are not in isolation. And if you see some of the imaging studies that have come out, uh, you know, where there's FibSem data of, of, of individual cells, what, what's really remarkable is how crowded everything looks and how might the organelles seem to be all next to each other. And I think that those functional interactions are going to be very important for the functions of those organelles. Do you think that these cells that have massive membrane compartment and huge length associated with them are fundamentally different from smaller cells, even just within the nervous system? And do you think it's important to be able to recapitulate that in these model systems? to be able to study what actually happens in this complex situation where you have a giant membrane? Well, I think that what we see over time in, uh, in a lot of these disorders, it, it, a lot of them are ascending in a person. So you'll see them in the feet first and then they gradually go up. To me, that would suggest that there's that there, there, there might be similar, uh, these the, the, the shorter axons and longer axons. It's just that there's more susceptibility in the longer axons. But that for the most part, the basic machinery and stuff, I would expect to be about the same. I would just expect that just the, the massive length is what allows the phenotype to be manifest so earlier. I guess I'm asking, is it important to be able to visualize dynamics in these I see, sorts okay. of cells versus... I don't know. I think it would be very hard to. So I think that what we probably will do is is still rely on polarized cells, and I think we'll still get a basic understanding of the dynamics in exons that are maybe more experimentally um, amenable to study. Uh, I think that certainly anything we see, uh, you know, we can sort of you know, extrapolate to some degree that it would affect a, a much longer neuron, but it's hard to imagine experimentally how we would ever study um, an exon or an ER or anything that's a meter long in culture, but however, we can certainly study, you know, axon formation, the formation of long processes in lots of different systems, and I imagine that there will be common themes there that we could certainly, again, extrapolate to understand maybe why this, why we have this link-dependent disorder. What's surprising with many of these mutations is that it seems like the neurite outgrowth is actually mm -hmm. broken in many of them. Yet, the disease process you imagine happening sort of at the other end. This is an, a, a problem of laying out the nervous system or not being able to sustain it because of some stress process that then causes a degenerative. Well, I think it could be both. And, and one, one uh, interesting example is if you think of the elastin protein, uh, that's SPG3, it's a very early onset form. And it seems like in a majority of patients after their teen years, it doesn't progress anymore. And to us, that sounds like a developmental disorder. It sounds like the formation of these uh, of these pathways. Uh, and there's also another, again, another common one where we have enough patients to imagine this is there's these, this, uh, this common form that's related to spastin mutations. Uh, and spastin, uh, if, you get the, uh, uh, if you get a very early onset form of this, you actually have a more mild uh, course. Whereas if you get it later in life, uh, it's much more severe. And again, that would suggest maybe sort of a bimodal type of mechanism, where some people are getting more of a developmental problem, but for some reason that it doesn't, it doesn't predispose them to additional degenerative processes down the road. But there's other patients who clearly have a later onset where we would expect that the developmental program has gone normally, and then all of a sudden have this relatively severe course. So I think it could be both, and certainly in the complex forms where patients have lots of other features, I think it's definitely both. 
But I think it is important to, to remember that it may not be in all cases a degenerative process. It may be a developmental process. Uh, and we have to remember we don't reach our full height till our teens or even older. So, uh, so you know, again, it's not something when we say development, it doesn't mean, you know, just out of a few years of life. It's something that could go on for a while. Uh, and I think there, there are forms of HSP where it is very clear that there are what appear to be developmental uh, abnormalities. And again, whether or not that predisposes to further degenerative processes or not, again, I think that it's going to differ between the different types of disorders. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank Blackstone. you. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Mm -hmm.